I'm going to be reading from 1 Peter 2, verse 18 to 25. You can find it either in your bulletin or if you brought your Bible or Bible app. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have been returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." This is the word of God. Thank you very much, Ange, for praying and reading for us. Um, And again, thanks, Dean, for coming and sharing with us uh, about Compassion Canada and uh, the work that they do. yeah, we are uh, we are in a, a series, and just we're just finishing a series. Actually, this is the last in this series of messages, sort of about the cross. Uh, so what we've been doing is is we've been thinking a little bit uh, together about what the purpose of the cross is, uh, and in, and it's in, re- in response in part to the fact that you know non Christians sometimes they. They object to Christianity simply because of the crucifixion itself. They say that is just a weird, old, ancient, pagan ritual that you people are still holding on to in modern Western civilization, and I don't understand why. It's barbaric and it's gross. And what we've been trying to show is that, in fact, the the cross, yes, in a sense it is barbaric in the sense that it is violent, and it is gross. I mean, anybody who's ever watched The Passion of the Christ or movies that depict the crucifixion of Jesus, it's, it's gross. It is. But, 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 we've been trying to understand how essentially it is ultimately beautiful. The cross is beautiful because it meets human needs that cannot be met in the same way by anything else in this world. And so we've been going through these different things over the last several weeks, um, and we're in the last one today about why Jesus came to die. This is week six since Jesus came to die. Imagine if I did that and preached 50 weeks on this subject. Um, We're we're going to talk about one, um, so we've been sort of hitting the main ones, the big ones, like the the sort of central ones in, in the Bible, and 
The one we're going to talk about today is actually probably the most forgotten, at least in evangelical churches like our own. Uh, And it is the fact that Jesus died on the cross. He came to die on the cross to be an example for us. So on the front of your bulletin, the title is Exemplar. Jesus is an exemplar. He is an example to us. And the reason that it is most often forgot in circles like ours is because about 100 years ago or so, the church was finding that more and more people were struggling with the claims of Christianity and with the claims of of, Christianity. of the church, and so in order to uh, maintain relevance, uh, the church, uh, the the mainline churches, uh, the main churches in Western culture, sort of started questioning uh, the necessity of the crucifixion, and. Uh, they started sort of taking away some of the things that we'd been talking about in the last number of weeks, things like, you know, paying the penalty for sin and, uh, you know, turning away God's wrath and purifying us from unrighteousness, all these things that we've been talking about. They said, that's not really what the cross is about. The cross, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we should understand it basically as an example. Jesus was an example to the rest of the world. And, And so that was the emphasis of sort of, Protestant liberal Christianity for a long time, and then evangelical churches, Bible-believing churches sort of pushed back against that and said, you know what, we're never going to talk about Jesus as an example, because then we'll end up like these other churches that don't really talk about the supernatural reasons for Jesus dying on the cross. And that's unfortunate, because it's an important part of the ministry of Jesus Christ, that He be an example for us. So in our our passage that we've said, in verse 21, it says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you would follow in His footsteps. Now, you've got to think about the, the original circumstances that Peter is writing into, okay? This is the early church. This is just a couple of decades after Jesus has died and this news about Him rising from the dead is starting to spread and people are putting, putting their faith in Him. And so he's writing to people who are coming straight out of pagan culture. Like we're talking, they believed in multiple gods, they believed in you know the Roman gods or the Greek gods and all that kind of stuff. They come out of that culture, they put their trust in Jesus Christ, they, they sort of completely shift their worldview uh, along Christian lines and now they're asking the question, how am I supposed to live? Like, what do I do now? How do I, how do I behave as this new Christian? Specifically, in this passage, it's about slaves. How, how do I, as a slave in a pagan household with a pagan boss, and now I'm a Christian, how am I, how am I supposed to behave? How am I supposed to, to live now? And Peter's answer is basically, look at Jesus. Look at your Savior and imitate Him. That's how you're supposed to live. Now, what we're going to do this morning is, I mean, it's not quite that simple, right? I mean, I'm a preacher, so I, I can never let it be quite so simple. We're going we're gonna to answer a bunch of questions. You can see it in the outline regarding Jesus as an example. Uh, what is it that Jesus is an example of? How was Jesus an example to follow? How in the world was he able to be that kind of example, and how in the world do we actually endure as he does? Those are the four questions we're going to go through quickly this morning to understand what it means that Jesus is our example, okay? Let's start with, what is Jesus an example of? Now, this is a huge question, and it's an important question, and here's why. In many ways, Jesus is a terrible example to follow. 
what? You say, what? I hope you're saying, what? He is. He's a terrible example to follow because if you look closely at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and then you actually try to follow it, it should lead you to utter despair. It should like make you so utterly depressed. Jesus, here's what Jesus says. He says, you have heard it said, you should not kill, you should not murder. And we all go, yeah. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, you shouldn't even have malice. You shouldn't even have ill will. You shouldn't even have hatred in your hearts for another person. That's pretty heavy. Jesus goes on and he says, you know, you should always be compassionate towards others. You've heard it said, thou shalt not steal. And we say, yes, of course, we shouldn't touch other people's property. And Jesus says, ah, but I say you should never be jealous. You should never be discontent with what you have. You should never be envious of, of what others have. You should always be grateful and always be peaceful in your heart. And you think, what? How is that? Who, that's not realistic, right? The fact is there's nobody like Jesus. There never was anybody like Jesus. You look at his life yeah, his teaching's hard, but if you look at his life, it's even worse. If you try to follow his life, you are dead in the water. This is a guy who never made a wrong move. No matter what situation he was in, you look at his life and look at his interactions with, with different people in different circumstances, he always knows what to do. He always knows what to say. He's always bang on. He's not like you and me. He doesn't have this weird temperament, right? So I'm one of these sort of aggressive type A people. So no matter what situation I'm in, I think the best way to handle it is straight on, go after it, right? And the times that I have just screwed up royally because I did what I am naturally inclined to do. That's why God gave me a wife who's not like that. So that every now and then when I'm about to rush in stupidly, she can grab me and say, you know, you might want to just chill. Otherwise, we're always waiting for something to get done. So anyhow, but that's, that's an internal thing that we've got going on. Don't worry about it. Um, you get what I'm saying though? Jesus isn't like that. He doesn't have a temperament. He's a perfect human being. So he always knows exactly what to do. And, and that's why Christianity is very, very unique. You see, in the religions of the world, look, Confucians will say, be like Confucius and you're a good Confucian. Buddhists will say, be like Buddha and you're a good Buddhist. Uh, Muslims will say, follow Muhammad and be like Muhammad and you will be a good uh, Muslim. Christians say, try to follow Jesus. Go ahead. You will fail utterly. You can't. That's why we emphasize what's called the substitution. We emphasize that Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died because we never could have done either of those things on our own. And yet, and yet, here's Peter saying, Jesus is an example. Again, in verse 21, in case you forgot, he says, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. And that, that word he uses for example is actually a word used for uh, describing children learning their letters. So they would, they would put letters under a piece of paper that you could see through, and then the kids would trace the letters. And that's how they learned their letters, by tracing the letters underneath the paper, right? And that, that, that phrase, um, uh, about follow in his steps, is actually, literally, it's like follow in his tracks, in his actual prints. So you know when um, you're, you know, back in the days when we used to get a lot of snow, 
maybe I was smaller, but I really think that we don't get as much snow. Uh, back in the days when you get a lot of snow, you'd walk behind your parents, right? And they would, they would cut a path through the snow, and then you would like try to step in their footprints so that you could follow them. That's literally the idea that Peter is describing here. He's saying that's, that's how we should do. But here's the question, what are we supposed to follow? If it's not just sort of his basic life, what are we supposed to follow? Well, the clue comes in verse 21 when it says, to this you were called. To this you were called. And the this, not to confuse you too much, refers back to verse 20, the verse before. He's talking to slaves. And he says, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and enduring it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called. What's the this? Suffering for doing good. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will suffer for doing good. There's two assumptions he's making. You'll do good. And you'll suffer. See, Jesus is the preeminent example of suffering for doing good. When, when Paul, Peter sorry, says in verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, he's almost quoting Isaiah 53 verse 9. And in Isaiah, we discover that there's this character coming, there's this this. this, this this mysterious character that Isaiah prophesies about, who is perfect, this is the Messiah, who is perfect in every way, he has committed no sin, he is, he is the perfect human being, he's going to come, but he's going to come and he's going to suffer. And Jesus, when you look at his life, he's the only one who's ever done any good, he's the only one who's actually practiced what he preaches He's the best guy who ever lived, and yet the prophecy is, is that he would suffer. He would suffer for doing good. Now, why? Think about this. Why would you suffer for doing good? Why would anybody persecute you or make your life difficult for doing good? It kind of struck me. I was like, so what does he mean? How can this be like suffering for doing good? So if I go mow my 84-year-old neighbor's lawn, I do something good, am I going to actually like experience some kind of suffering for that? Well, no. Think about the context again. Here's slaves ruled by masters who come from this pagan context, and now they've converted to Jesus, they've converted to Christianity, they believe that Jesus is God now, and now their pagan master says, it's high holy day number 43 in our pagan... Uh, religion, and we're all supposed to go off to temple and sacrifice. And there's the slave going, Ooh, oh man, I, I, I can't. Mr. Jones, uh, is there any, I hope there's no Joneses here. Um, I'm sorry, but I, I can't go. See, I'm, I now believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that there is no God but Him, and I, I have to live entirely for Him. And so I can't participate in these pagan sacrifices. And, and they were being reviled as being unpatriotic. So the early Christians were considered unpatriotic because they wouldn't participate in the games and the other festivals and that kind of stuff in the pagan culture around them. They were considered atheistic because they weren't polytheist, meaning believing in many, many gods like the, the Romans did and the Greeks did. They believed in this one God. And so all kinds of things were said about them because they resisted the culture because of their faith. 
So fast forward 2,000 some odd years and let's say you have a family that goes, that meets for brunch every Sunday. You ever watch that show Life in Pieces? That's a family that meets for brunch every Sunday. Now imagine you're in this family and after doing that for 10, 15 years, you know, you're in your own house and your own family, you have your own things, but you go and meet for brunch every Sunday. Uh, now you're converted and church is at 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday and mom says, okay, don't forget to bring the, the salad or bring the eggs or whatever for brunch. And you say, uh, mom, I got a problem to talk to you about. I can't make brunch. And mom and dad and your siblings, they say, what's gotten into them? They're all like religious now and they're holier than thou and they think that they're so good because they got to go to church and they don't come to brunch anymore. Like, come on, this is how it plays out. This is how, if you've talked to people, if you know people, or maybe you are a person who is the only believer in your family, like my father, Virtually the only believer in his family. Now, he left them all uh, pretty much across the, the, the ocean, but he still, he was the only believer in his family. He, and he'd go back and he'd visit with them and they would roll their eyes at him and his religion that he took so seriously. Or maybe you're a nonprofit organization and all of a sudden you can't apply for the Canada Summer Jobs Grant because the government wants you to sign an attestation that says that you believe in their ideology regarding life and when it can be taken. And you say, now what do we do? do we, is our program over? I can't sign it. Where do we find the money for this? Or maybe you're considered anti-freedom or anti-woman because you don't agree with uh, free access to abortion under all circumstances. I mean, the list goes on and on. The idea is, is that Jesus is an example of suffering for doing good, suffering for holding beliefs that, that push against the tide. So how is he an example of that suffering? That's the next question, number two. Verse 23, when they hurled... Oh, sorry. I have one more example. Or maybe, you, like Compassion Canada, you say with boldness, and this is one of the things I love about Compassion Canada, every time I picked up a McLean's magazine for the last five years, there would be this full-page ad from Compassion Canada, and they would just splatter it all over the page. The difference is Jesus. And then the government of India no longer likes the way you have your religious component to your ministry. And so you, along with how many other, Dean? Another 25 other Christian ministries were shut down and no longer allowed to do their ministry in, in India because they refused to remove the faith component to their mission. And I wanted to make sure I got that one in there. Sorry? Yeah, 2,500, right? 2,500 missions were booted out, basically. So how is Jesus an example? 
in the face of suffering. And I'm not saying that this is how we respond to every form of suffering, but this is an example that Jesus gives, or Peter gives. In verse 23, it says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, again, he's being very specific, okay? This is not a blanket endorsement of pacifism. This has been used by certain church traditions to say that this is, this is a, a Peter endorsing some sort of pacifism, and that's not what's going, actually, going on. Jesus resisted evil in particular contexts all the time. Peter is talking about being unjustly accused of things because of your beliefs. The Pharisees said that Jesus was from the devil. He was casting out demons in the devil's name. He was taunted while he was on the cross by them. They said, oh, you know, he, he's calling out to Elijah. He says he was the son of God. If, if he is the son of God, let God save him now. He went through this unfair trial where he was charged with blasphemy and he was slandered. And the question is, how did Jesus respond to all of that? The answer Peter gives is he didn't retaliate. He didn't threaten. You know, you ever had your name like dragged through the mud? Somebody's saying all kinds of horrible, untruthful things about you. What do you want to do? You want to hit back, right? You want to fight fire with fire. You want to defend yourself. This happens a lot now because we have Facebook and Twitter, right? Even the president gets in on the game. People are tearing each other to shreds on this social media stuff and, and saying all kinds of, of hurtful, untruthful things about people. And here's Jesus in the midst of that, and he doesn't freak out. He is quiet. He is silent. This is, listen to this. This is a bit of wisdom from Jesus. Sometimes the best thing you can do when you're under attack is to keep your mouth shut. Oh, it's hard for people like me. Don't be surprised that you're under attack. In fact, be surprised if you're never under attack. If you're never under attack, if you never face injustice, if you never have a coworker make fun of you a little bit, or, or you never have a family member sort of roll their eyes at your, you know, religiosity or whatever, if none of this ever happens to you, you got to wonder, do, do, you know, am, am, I, am I following my Savior? At the least, people should misunderstand you. At the worst, at least here in the West, they'll disparage you. A friend of mine, Bill DeYoung, some of you know him, he's preached here before, he, he was asked to speak on disability at a very liberal seminary in Toronto just a little while ago. He was part of a panel of speakers, all speaking on the issue of being physically disabled and what it means in this world to have disability, et cetera, and what happens uh, in the new creation. The promises of the, of the Bible are that when we... When we when we enter the new creation, all tears and sorrows will be gone. What does that have to do with disability? And he talked about how, well, we'll all be healed. We'll all be whole. Those of us who have mental disabilities will be whole. Those of us who have emotional disabilities will be whole. Those of us who have physical disabilities will be whole. And he got just excoriated. He got literally heckled while he was giving his talk because he was giving, an, what's, it's a term I never understood and heard, heard before, but an ableist interpretation of the Bible. Basically, is being told, 
that his ideas were exclusionary, prejudiced, bigoted, and unworthy of being part of public discourse. He didn't fight fire with fire either. Um, sometimes the best thing that we are called to do, according to what Peter is saying here, is to just be quiet. Now, how do you do that? How did Jesus do that? And that's the second half of the verse. Point three, how did Jesus do that? And it's the second half of verse 23. It's three, sorry. It says, instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, you've got to understand something. Some of you might be saying to yourself, well, it was easy for Jesus not to fight back. I mean, he's God. He's a perfect human being. You just said that before. He never sinned, so it's super easy to just take it and not get worked up over it the way I would because I have sinful tendencies. But that's not true. If you think about it, if you have the power, if it's within your power to utterly decimate your enemies... Wouldn't you be more tempted to use that power, not less? Like, think of Jesus on the cross while he is hanging there dying. It's not those nails that keep him on the cross while he dies. It's his commitment to us that keeps him on the cross while he dies. And so while the Pharisees and the others are laughing at him and mocking him and spitting upon him, this is the Son of God, he knows deep down inside, he knows that at any moment he could call down a platoon or a big army of angels to completely wipe them out at any moment. And he doesn't. He doesn't. Still nothing out of his mouth. Where does he get that self-control? Well, in verse 23, it says, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He's talking about the final judgment and you know, some people, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want you to listen especially carefully here because oftentimes people will say belief in a final judgment is bad for the world. This is actually one of Richard Dawkins's biggest arguments against religion is he says the idea of a final judgment is a bad, bad, bad thing because what it does is, is it makes the religious believer, it makes the true believer think, well, hey, if God's going to smite them in the end, that means I get freedom to smite a little bit now. It leads to violence. It leads to groups hating one another and we need to get rid of that. We need to stop it. But that's exactly wrong, actually. In fact, it's the lack of belief in a final judgment that nourishes the vengeful heart. Think about this. Because there was no final judgment on the horizon, Sean Connery could say in The Untouchables when he was talking about Al Capone, when he sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. Because... If there is no final judgment, then you think that you're the one who's got to straighten things out in the here and now. But if there is a final judge, if there is a righteous judge who will put absolutely everything right, you do not have to have that bloodlust in the here and now. You can entrust it to God. You can say, he will put everything right. He will, nobody gets away with anything. And therefore, I don't have to rush to judgment in this life, as some of you 
and I don't have any individual in mind. So if you're thinking, he's talking about me, good. Some of you here this morning, you have been hurt very, very deeply. Maybe by another person. They hurt you so bad. They betrayed you in a way that you could never anticipate. Or you've been hurt so deeply by a community, maybe a church community. And I'm sad to say that that happens. Because churches are full of sinful people too. But you have been hurt either by a person or by a group of people or by a whole community of people. And as a result of that hurt, You can't get over it. You can't even get through it. I, I'm not saying you should get over it in the sense that, oh, it doesn't bother you anymore. I'm saying that, that you are somehow, you continue to be ruled by it. You obsess over it. You pl- replay the incident perhaps in your mind over and over again. Or perhaps you have become very hard and you have become kind of cynical and you've become untrusting of people because you say, you know what, people, they screw you in the end so you can never ever put your trust in another human being again. And it's holding you back from being free, from living life. You avoid certain places or certain kinds of people. You won't commit to things. And it's because you're still ruled by it. But if you could entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. I'm not saying that you'll necessarily have no consequences of the hurt that happened to you. We all live with scars. You can be healed from a, from a, from a, a deep cut, but you still have a scar but you can be free from the need for revenge, from the seething obsessiveness, because God will put things right one day. He is a perfect judge. And because he's a perfect judge, you don't have to fear him either. You don't have to fear him. Because some of you maybe are fearing him. You're thinking about how you are the hurter, how you are the one who has perpetrated the crime against another person and you're thinking he's going to judge justly he's going to get me but you don't have to fear him because he's perfect what am I talking about I'm talking about the last point how do you endure like Christ it's not enough for you to say I will entrust myself to him who judges justly because it could just terrify you to think that you would be held in the hands of the perfect judge But notice what Peter says. It says that in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin, sorry, sins, and live for righteousness. What Peter is saying is this. For Jesus to be your example, you need to first see him as more than your example himself as though as though it was his own it wasn't his own but he took it as though it was his own he accepted our punishment on our behalf in our place voluntarily and this is why you can now entrust yourself to the one who judges justly because God is a just judge and if God has punished Jesus in your place for your sin then he cannot if he is a just judge he simply cannot he is bound by his own just nature to not judge you for that sin because it would be unjust for him to punish someone twice for the same offense for the same offense 
so you can entrust yourself to Jesus and see him as your example because you've already seen him as far, far more than your example. And why did he do it? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. How interesting that Peter says, die to sins, hey? He doesn't say sin, which is what you'd typically expect. If you read your Bible a lot, you'd, you'd, you'd expect him to say sin, but he says sins. Here's what's incredible about the cross, about the gospel, okay? On the one hand, as I just said, all your sins are paid for. All the punishment is gone. You look at the cross and you know that you are free. And that is a huge comfort, huge. But on the other hand, when you suffer, when you struggle, when you're accused and you want to hit back, you want to fight fire with fire. You look at the cross, and the cross gives you no encouragement to do that at all. Instead, Peter says that Jesus suffered so that you would not commit sins anymore. When you think about hitting back, the cross, the cross it's like Jesus is saying to you, haven't I been hit enough? Aren't there enough nail prints in my hand already? Are you going to revile me too? I died so you wouldn't do this anymore. So the cross becomes your encouragement, your, your encouragement both in that you're not guilty, but also in your encouragement that holds you back from committing sin anymore. It's your power to endure and resist. And that's why we always end at the cross. Because at the cross, we see the law of love fulfilled. And we hear God's pardoning voice. And there, to see that fulfilled by our Savior transforms our duty to follow, to resist, into choice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that Jesus is and all he has done for us. We thank you that he is our example, that he is our sin bearer, which thankfully we don't have to be sin bearers ourselves, but because he is our sin bearer, he is also our example in how we are to live, especially in the face of, of accusation is against us and often unfair um, charges leveled against us. Father, give us hearts that are soft, that hearts that are, are willing to, to endure uh, for the sake of the gospel. Give us the ability to entrust ourselves to the judge, the righteous one who judges justly. And that's you. In Jesus' name we pray.